Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Check out this title, Sakyong Jamgon Mipam Rinpoche. Uh, I don't even think that's the full title. Um, people call him Sakyong Mipam just just for short, as if that were not a mouthful as well. Fascinating guy. Uh, he's got a new book out called The Lost Art of Good Conversation, which I think we can all agree is uh, really important at this time of deep, deep divisions, not only in the United States, but around the around the planet. He is the head of the Shambhala Buddhist lineage, um, Shambhala International, which is a network of local meditation centers all over the world. Um, he's based in Boulder, Colorado. They also have a big um, center up in in um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and and you know the, many of the major cities uh, of North America. The really interesting group. His dad founded it, um, and his dad, who we've talked about on this podcast in the past, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, was. Pretty controversial guy, uh, widely, widely respected, very much seen as a as a as a really smart teacher, great writer, um, but also controversial in some ways that you hear us discussed. And uh, Sakyong Mipam is uh, his son and has really kind of pursued a different style. And um, so a lot to talk about with him. Uh, I will say you'll hear us talk about this. Um, I was um, I was part of the book launch. They invited me very kindly to, to – say a few words on stage at the book launch, and uh, I did a lot of swearing, which um, probably wasn't the best idea, so you'll hear him gently chide me for that. So here we go, Sakyong Mipam. Well, thank you for doing this. It's yeah. to be here, yeah. Uh, I always ask the first question, which is the same question, which is how did you get into meditation? Yeah, I, I think your answer is going to be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I was born into it. Yeah. Uh, so if you believe in karma, I guess I was – I chose to be here, so to speak – but yes, I was sort of uh, born into this um, tradition and this life and this way of living. So your father, mm-hmm. tell us about your your dad. Well, my father, uh, the Venerable Chogyam Trungpa was uh, a preeminent um, lama and spiritual leader in Tibet. And then he escaped Tibet in 1959. And then he proceeded to Oxford University and he studied there. And uh, he studied philosophy and comparative religions. And, you know, he was sort of one of the last of the great uh, masters trained actually in Tibet. And then he basically, you know, wanted to know how to take that tradition and go forward. And then he basically began to teach in the West, first in England and then uh, eventually in the United States. And he, you know, began to teach meditation. And he's really known as being sort of one of the most, you know, Forefather was a preeminent uh, people to bring Buddhism to the West, uh, meditation, mindfulness, a lot of these activities. So, And then, you know, he established um, sort of the continuity of the lineage, Shambhala, which we have uh, centers now and established in Europa University. Which, um, in Boulder. In Boulder, Colorado, which is still there and thriving. And um, so then, yeah, I think he continued to teach and so that's sort of – you know how I come into the story. So, I I would I'm far from being an expert on your dad Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. I can barely pronounce his name. <laughs> says something about my expertise. But I've I've read a little bit about him and from him. I've 
interviewed many of his followers, um, and I'm quite close with some people who were, you know, early uh, followers of his. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so I've, I know a little bit. Okay. But based on the little I know, you guys are pretty different. I mean, this guy, your dad, was known for something called crazy wisdom. Mm-hmm. He had a pretty heavy drinker. Um, there was some stuff about him, you know, with his relationships with some of his followers being kind of intimate and, and widespread. You seem not that way at all. Uh, I'm, I'm wise, but not crazy. So could you just talk to me a little bit about the differences and whether your style is a reaction to his? Well, I think we're just two different people. And I think that's one of the things about lineage or however you want to think about it. I mean, I think he was sort of in many ways reflecting over the time in terms of what was happening in the late 60s and 70s. And, you know, I think also he did hold this tradition of just sort of taking uh, spirituality and trying to really practice it in, in sort of uh, everyday life. And uh, for myself, it's been, you know, an organic journey. And I think, as you know, it's like how do you continue something? And I think he, he had to be, I think, very bold and he had to be very kind of uh, daring in many ways to come into this culture, and he assimilated. And, you know, that culture was the early sort of hippies and, and that kind of uh, energy that was going on. And so I think it was who he was and also probably some kind of reaction. And part of it, the teaching is really trying to understand the culture you're in. And then for myself, it's, you know, I've never sort of uh, been in sort of the mindset, you can say, to necessarily compare myself to him, but rather just taking the essence of the transmission that I receive from him and uh, continuing that forward. So I don't know if that's a compliment or not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, I'll I'll set it aside. I I, I didn't think about it in those terms. So so you said you were born into it. How early did you start getting meditation instructions, spiritual education? When did that start? Well, I was born in India, in Bodh Gaya, which is... uh, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And um, my mother, who was also um, from Tibet and, and was uh, um, trained and a nun and, and practicing. And so I, I was grew up in India uh, during that period where all the Tibetans were refugees. And so we were establishing communities and monasteries and things like that. So I remember very young, you know, being in ceremonies and pujas and Things like that. Pujas meaning prayer ceremonies. Ceremonies, yes, and, and where there's chanting and, and just sort of sort of the usual uh, deeper meditations and things like that. So that was part of just my upbringing. And then when I joined my father in Scotland, actually, and that's where I joined him. So before he came to the U.S. Before he came to the United States, yeah, he came back over to India, and then basically, you know, wanted me to come with him. And he said it's really time for uh, your training to start. How old were you then? I was about eight. Okay. Oh, that's pretty early. Yeah. And so then I would say, but sort of on my own accord and sort of, you know, with my under, on my own sort of, I was probably on 12 where I had a regular meditation practice. And I did that daily. 12. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, and and at what point did you know, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do with my life? Well, I think pretty early on, even my mother tells stories of myself, like wanting to immediately go to the monastery and be in the ceremonies. And I remember very much like, having a tendency. And it's not just because I think I was, you know, the son of my father. I, I had a personal sort of drawn, I would say. And uh, that's not necessarily true just because you're a Tibetan or whatever it may be. I think it's very individual. So that was something that I've always had. 
even my father would say, you know, you should do some other things. But uh, I think he was happy that I was obviously getting involved. And it was also it was like you need to make up your own mind about this. So that was always uh, – there was never pressure from that point of view. Did you do any regular kid stuff? Were you into video games and comic books and movies or were you like all about Buddhism? <laughs> no, I mean I did other things. I played sports. You know, that was something that I really enjoyed. And, uh, you know, obviously the culture in terms of movies and things like that. And so I assimilated. You know, I mean I was uh, as normal as you can be uh, with my background. And uh, sort of that's something that's sort of uh, been obviously kind of a – a lifelong journey, I would say, kind of balancing the whole situation, sort of being a bit of a bridge from that point of view, culturally and, and spiritually and so forth. Did you live with your dad the whole your whole childhood or uh, were you around for the – I would I don't – again, I don't know all the history, but I believe he had operations in Boulder and then all, also in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Right. Um, right. Were you around for, for all of that or – because I mm-hmm. know he remarried at some point. He did and I think that because I was with my mother in India – and then when I was in England and United States, I was with him. And, you know, he, yeah, I was with him a lot. And, I mean, I still attended um, sort of some of the teachings. And then I think as I got older, you know, I, I was with him more because he wanted me to attend more of the uh, meditations and what was happening at the time. So it was basically there um, through that process. And he initially went to Boulder. And he did most of his sort of teaching from that as a base. And then later it was uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And did this, did some of the turmoil of his life, maybe turmoil is not the right word, but did that, did that impact you in any way? Of course. I mean, in terms of myself following, I think there was a lot of when he passed away, there was a lot of grief and there was a lot of uh, sort of you know, holes in people's lives. And also I think having a sense of continuity and having a sense of lineage and that responsibility. And I was very young when, I, when he passed away. How old were you? I was uh, 22. Okay. And so, you know, he kind of said, I think, you know, you're going to have to, I've done what I can and you're going to have to do the rest here. And so he was, you know, kind of trying to pass that over. That's a lot. It is. And then after that, I actually went, um, one of the great sort of teachers, His Holiness Tingo Chenzo Rinpoche, um, who was one of the great masters of that, you know, uh, these days. But um, he was almost like a grandfather figure. He actually knew my father in Tibet. He trained him too. He later, you know, obviously taught uh, the Dalai Lama and many uh, important teachers. And so he basically did the cremation rites and everything like that. And then, you know, he said, no, you need to come with me and we need to do some further training. So I, then I left um, U.S. and then I went and lived with him after that for many years and then continued my training uh, back in uh, India. When you're, I've heard of Dil, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's I, in the. There's a documentary about your dad's life. I believe it's called Crazy Wisdom, mm-hmm. um, and and you see the footage of of this great master presiding over the funeral ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had heard tell of him even before I saw the documentary about what a great teacher he was. He was. So, you, you so when you went and lived with him. What was that like? Were you, was it all day, every day meditation? What specific kinds of meditation were you doing? It was it was pretty much every day. So even when there was breaks, there was something else going on. So he was a preeminent scholar and meditator, and um, he really was sort of like the teacher of teachers, and also incredibly just sort of kind and warm person, and 
by the way, excellent conversationalist. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> but he was, he was basically, you know, very kind of human, I would say. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of deep sort of love for um, kind of the human connection, I would say. And um, so usually, he, you know, there was annual practices. There was teachings. There was reading transmissions, uh, empowerments going on. And uh, so this was at a monastery in Nepal. And then he would, you know, be invited to various places and and um, teach. So I think he very much took it, uh, felt it was his responsibility to um, continue. In fact, he said, you know, he and my father had a kind of an agreement of what training wasn't complete, he would finish. So that sort of was, uh, so I felt very um, held and protected in that way and very fortunate. What would you, so you're now at the head of this Shambhala uh, tradition. What would you say the core mission and message is of Shambhala? The main, I think, is what we call sort of establishing enlightened society. And I think one of the sort of essential elements is to really living the spirituality or living the meditation or living that kind of aspect. And one of the main messages, I would say, or the way the inspiration comes about is regarding humanity to be basically good. So there's a sense of actually regarding the person um, to be good and approaching life from the point of view of goodness at that kind of deep level. And, you know, I think the other real aspect is how to live with some kind of um, bravery, which we call a sense of warriorship, sort of non-aggressive warriorship, but actually living within the challenge of what is happening. And it's sort of drawn from that warrior spirit of of how to actually engage um, as opposed to maybe – you know, run away or, or try to hide from it. So it's it's trying to bring that element into it. So that's part of the kind of inspiration for Shambhala. So let me break those down because they're two very interesting things. The first is that your the essential view is that people are basically good. People are basically good. We don't live in a time in this country where I think people think that of their fellow countrymen mm-hmm. and women. Uh, we are incredibly divided. What do you? What do you how, how do you instill th- this message that you're talking about now? That actually, no, human beings are basically good. Well, I mean, I, I think when we talk about this, that that's a very kind of um, immediate reaction. I mean, I think we all feel like most people are good, but there's always a few people that are not good. Yeah, and I think we have that kind of tendency. I think it's a very challenging. Um, statement and, and uh, view. And um, one of the things that I always reflect on is that that was a, a sort of the last view or inspiration of wisdom, however you think about it, that my father passed to me. And he really experienced sort of the escaping from Tibet. I think he experienced sort of the worst of humanity in many ways. So it, it's interesting coming from somebody who really experienced tragedy, loss, uh, incredible violence, and then his promotion was, if humanity is going to go forward, we have to be able to respect the person. And I think good here is not necessarily good versus bad, but there's some kind of humanity is complete, whole. whole. There's an there's innate sense of um, each person has the prerogative of having some kind of basic dignity. So I don't think it's it's necessarily moralistic. It's more looking at the human being as not um, faulted or there's you know a sense of guilt writing over. 
but there's some kind of an innate healthiness or, or some kind of um, sanity there. And how are you going? How are you going to begin to approach your own, your own mind and others? And how are you going to relate to that? So I think part of the journey is: can you relate to yourself that way? Um, how do you regard yourself? Uh, do you regard yourself as basically good or not, or, or complete, or is it? Are you fundamentally at fault? And then the whole world's at fault. So I think it's, on the one hand, looking at it from um, sort of a, a holistic point of view. I said I was going to break that down and talk about both sides of it, but I'm now looking at the clock and realizing you have a whole day of retreats to get to, and we haven't yet even gotten to your book. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put a pin in that and invite okay. you back at a later time right. to, to talk about warriorship because I think it's very important in the way you define it. But you have this new book called The Lost Art of Good Conversation, A Mindful Way to Connect with Others and Enrich Everyday Life. Why this book? Why now? Well, one of the things, as you know, I mean, as, as a meditator and as a practitioner, I felt like that um, there's a lot of interest these days. And to me, part of that is where where is that? And a lot of the reasons for that is people's stress and overwhelm right now. And so to me, there was never a disconnect from meditation and society. And one of the things that I really felt like was that actually a lot of um, pain and and, and sort of dissatisfaction people are feeling is often with their interpersonal relationships in terms of how they're relating to others, how they're relating to the world. So bringing that theme of just sort of how we relate to ourselves in meditation in terms of friendliness and uh, paying attention and care and just a sense of your own presence and dignity when you, when you meditate, that can actually be applied in a very simple way to daily activities and conversation is, is one of those activities that we all do. And so it was like, how can we, and especially at this time, because it feels like there's, you know, heartfelt com- uh, communication and basic human communication is is breaking down, and it seems like obviously with all our technology, there's more communication on the hand. At the same time, there seems to be more disconnect at some kind of human level. So my inspiration was very much like let's sort of try to encourage the human connectivity, regardless of whatever, you know. Uh, view you have of life, we all connect to that kind of level. And to me, you know, I mean, conversation and that human connectivity is simple, but if you just multiply how many little conversations we're having around the world, it's millions and billions, and that's just having an effect on our basic atmosphere in terms of how we regard each other. Uh, People often, you know, when you're having conversation, part of the issue is do you actually just, you know, can you actually acknowledge the other person? and hold that kind of space. And so it's. I think it's a time where we're all challenged, and it comes back to the sense of, you know, how do we regard somebody else, and, and do we respect them? And so, you know, I think it's a very powerful um, time that way. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today 
to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So let's get practical. Um, do you ever watch the Chappelle show? You know what that is? Which is that? Dave Chappelle's. Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. Chappelle's show, um, I, I firmly believe is the funniest TV show in the history of television. Yeah. Um, Dave Chappelle, the most brilliant comedian um, in, modern, in modern times, in my view, again, he has this little skit in it where he's at dinner and some guy comes up and interrupts his dinner with his wife and starts pitching him on, on some idea. And you see Dave's list, uh, ostensibly listening to this person who's interrupted his dinner, but they have these thought bubbles over his head, uh. and all these random things are coming up in the thought bubbles, like uh, um, uh, somebody at a wine and cheese party beating somebody up for, for not telling him how good the cheese was going to be, and uh, Dave Chappelle's dancing around in a, in a sheep outfit. It's very funny. Uh-huh. It's just an example of how we we – we get lost in the middle of conversations with with other people all the time. I think it's universally relatable this phenomenon. How do you deal with that? Let's just start there. Uh, as a meditation uh, uh, teacher, uh, master, leader of this tradition, what do you say to people who say, "Like sometimes I just can't stay focused on another human being who's right in front of me"? Well, I think conversation is allowing for. I mean, in a very basic way, it's sort of just acknowledging there's another person living in the world. So often it's about us and what we think of the other person. So I think there's a moment where it's actually sort of we can either acknowledge somebody or not. And there's a moment where we can sort of just say, oh, there's – you know, it's it's almost take – do we have the consciousness to see what's going on with them? So there's a moment I feel like just sort of um, being present in that moment. So it's not always having the right answer or – Necessarily, those thoughts are it's bad. We all have them. We're thinking about other things. But in that moment, can you just be there for that person in that way? And so it's almost like respecting the basic human connectivity. And it and I think it doesn't have to be long. It's just being then there in that moment. What do you? What are the basic skills that you would recommend we all work to train in order to get bed, better at this art of good conversation? Curiosity and 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 uh, let's say patience. Uh, I think just being curious that there's somebody else there. And often, what happens we have these very rote conversations, or it becomes very superficial. And so it's like this is actually not only just sort of um, shallowing our own life, but somebody else's life. So there's a quality of how can we actually? Because um, I feel like part of the conversation is it can be an enriching experience, or it can be sort of a very shallow experience. And a lot of that is just sort of how we approach it. And, you know, I think just holding our mind there for instead of just going through our usual routine, just being there uh, for that moment and just having a little bit of patience. Because if you if you are approaching the conversation, assuming you know what's going to be said, you've dulled 
all of your faculties going into the thing as opposed to being curious and hearing something that might be interesting. Exactly. And I, I think it's a lot of to do with feeling, just being in that moment, just realizing as a human being. As soon as you begin to project, you know, the conversation is really not going anywhere. We're kind of in our own thought bubble again. And so we're not really coming out. We're not learning and we're not growing. And I feel like it's not like every conversation has to be that way. But if, if life becomes a sense of just everything becomes very dulled, then I think it begins to affect our own energy, your relationship. We no longer we are partners if we're married or whatever it may be. The world becomes very gray from that point of view. And I think, you know, there is a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of, you know, um, sort of warmth. And I think for most of us, we remember small conversations that have changed our life or our day. And we've also recognized conversations where we were not seen and we were sort of disempowered and then it affects the rest of our day. So it's like we have a lot of power in that little moment. That happens to you, even uh, even with your you know, the, the, the nice <laughs> it outfits does, you it wear. Does. Like, well, when, when do the, when, how, what, what what context can that happen to you? Well, I think a lot of times is that people, as as you probably have experienced, come with a particular agenda, and they want to get something. Yeah. And and I think that I always say, you know, in terms of like a, a spiritual tradition, I said a lot of it's just connecting, even if you're a teacher, you're a human being. So a lot of it just connecting with, um, you know, sort of the you know, mundane quality of life, as opposed to every conversation has to be deep. You can just connect on some human level. Uh, you and I are both family men. You've got three kids, I believe. Mm -hmm. We both have two-year-olds at home um, and wives. Conversation uh, with two-year-olds is a difficult at, at baseline. Conversation with your spouse is always, um, you know, not always, but can sometimes be um, tricky. Mm -hmm. what, how do you manage those? Well, when I told my wife that I was writing a book in conversation, she laughed. And, and, <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I think she's the better conversationalist, right? And, uh, and also, sometimes I'm just quiet. So I'm sitting there, and she wants to talk, and, you know, I have kind of a section of, like, you know, when's she going to get to the point, <laughs> you know? And, and I realize, like, and you, you realize, like, you know, I, I was with her. One of the things I realized was, especially when we first got married, is, like, this is not does just not have to have a point. It's just being there. And this is obviously – and also this conversation is not going to end. <laughs> it's just going to keep going on. And, you know, once I relax and realize, oh, this is just – you know, I have to be here as a human being as opposed to there's a lecture or something going on. And so I think that was an interesting thing. And I think she, the way that she just enjoys, you know, talking and, and being there. Is she Western or Tibetan? She's Tibetan. Okay. But I don't think it matters. No, just curious. <laughs> just curious. Yeah. Uh, and what about um, conflicts with your kids? How do you manage those conversationally? Well, I think one of the main things is that you have to obviously treat them as, as a human being. It's like what what are they experiencing? And so I think when you slow down and try to see what's going on, then also you have to be a bit of a you know, a guide in terms of how they navigate what's going on. So what words you use, what words you don't use, how to bring in – how to bring in just being there with them. I think a lot of it is just uh, providing the space for them. Do you ever lose your temper? Oh, yeah, of course. Really? I mean, with the kids? No, well, in terms of getting irritated and things like yeah. that. Sure, yeah. yeah, I'm not saying like turning sure. bright yeah. purple and screaming yeah. at them, yeah. but every once in a while, you know, maybe find that you're angry. I, I would say that that's part of the <laughs> path. 
part of the path, mm-hmm. right? Right. Not to deny that you have these emotions in the first place. Not at all. I mean, I think you know you're tired, or there's there's you know things going on. So there's just working with what's happening, as opposed to pretending it's not happening. Last night you had your book lunch party in New York. I believe you've been doing them in Boulder, New York, and Toronto. Mm-hmm. And um, part of the event was um, Lodro Rinsler, who's uh, yeah. also in the Shambhala tradition. Lodro is a great teacher here based in New York City and also a previous guest on this podcast. He brought up a group of varying people to right. sort of a series of people to talk um, about conversation. And um, I went first because uh, I had to get home to put my – kid to bed and and um uh i did what i usually do which is i used a lot of profanity and uh-huh. answering the questions and then i realized as i was walking out that when i had been leafing through your book you say <laughs> don't use profanity uh-huh. so <laughs> am i in trouble did i run afoul of your rule just give it give it to me straight no it was it was colorful <laughs> <laughs> well i think it's it's like when i was watching what you were doing you were talking about your own experience in terms of like what's happening in your mind in terms of meditation and, and how it's helped you. So I thought that was really helpful in terms of – because, you know, I think people have those kinds of um, expletives in their head. <laughs> uh, well, I can only speak for myself. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Yeah. But, so your point about profanity is is don't you don't use it in what – I mean I guess what I'm drawing from what you're saying now and, and you're, maybe you're just trying to be careful not to criticize me on my own show, but <laughs> which, by the way, you shouldn't worry about okay. because I like people who criticize right. me. But, but – I. I'm kind of taking from what you just said that it's okay if you're talking about your own experience and your own inner monologue and it may be a little uh, dirty at times, but uh, it's the casual use of profanity maybe to run down another human being uh, or to complain that is that is more corrosive. Yeah, I guess in the context of like being self-deprecating in terms of what's going on with you, you know, it could be seen as a sign of humbleness and also just sort of truth. And I also, I mean, I think one of the basic things with the conversation is what are you doing? You have power over your speech. You have power of how you're going to communicate. And so you can either uplift somebody or push them down. And so whether it's profanity or slight, even if it's not using profanity, just your tone, it's like, is that is that your view on life where you're trying to push people down? And on the one hand, it's like, you know, what is that going to result in? And a lot of things that we say or do are going to come back and are going to be there later. So it's there is a moment of we do have a choice. And it's become very sort of acceptable that we just sort of criticize each other. And on the one hand, it's like this, a, a critique. And there's a different way of just actually, you know, harming somebody. And, and even if it's very slight, it begins to add up. And, and especially young people, you know. You're creating negative mental energy that whether you see it or not stays with you. The Buddhists would call this karma. Yeah, so no, I, I think it's almost like, you know, these vapors are in the atmosphere and, and, mm. and, and they're just sort of sitting there. And so on the one hand, because you can't see words, you just think it's not physical. It just doesn't matter what I say, but it, it does. It has a lot of effect. And I think it, it begins it begins to affect. You absorb that energy. It's in you. You think about it. You say it to somebody else. Um, often when you or upset as somebody, somebody's upset as somebody else. So it's like you're creating a whole chain. And is that what I want to do? If that's what you want to do, go ahead. But if, if you don't, here's an opportunity. And then also I think sometimes mixing it up. So if you find yourself critiquing a lot, then add a compliment or try to uplift the situation. Um, sometimes if you're too self-deprecating, you know, try to be a little more honest or express yourself. So I mean I think it's not so much just being good in the conventional way 
but there's a sense of using speech in a you know appropriate way. It's such an area. It's such a tricky area in which to apply mindfulness because it's it's not just you with your eyes closed on the cushion. You are inter, you're interrelating with another human being. Uh, there's all these habits and and uh, that kick in these subconscious judgments and patterns that get triggered. It is a really tricky area in which to apply mindfulness. Well, when you think about your thoughts, what are most of your thoughts? I mean, they're either about you or somebody else. And even if they're about you, they're a lot of times what other people think of you. Yes. So it's an immediate – I mean, their society is already on your head. So you're having that internal conversation, and then now you're having that conversation physically with somebody else. And so I think that's one of the things that we – you know, have the opportunity to influence in many ways, like our speech or how we relate. So on the one hand, it is challenging and it's difficult, but I think we do have that opportunity and, you know, people navigate it. And I think that, I think one of the main things with mindfulness is that if you're present, you're able to determine and have some influence in the future. So how you think and behave now begins to affect what's, how you're going to go forward. If you're just in a reactionary mode, and you're not initiating something, then you're going to be living in that sort of misguided environment in the future. So it's it's living with intention or integrity, however you want to think about it. But I think life is, you know, it's like a river. It's a force, and you're participating in often think it's like riding a horse that's running away, and you're trying to sort of gain control, but the control doesn't have to be forceful, but it, has to, but it can be more centered. Uh, I'm going to make this the last question because uh, I'm – I worry about making you late. Um, why is this so important? You know, in the, in this era in which um, there's so many ways that we can express ourselves on the internet, face to face, at a protest, in conversation. Why is this subject, in your view, so important? And and what and what can we do to be on the right side? I think more than ever right now, it's, it's you know, we're humanity or how we're going forward. It's, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, fear. There's a lot of hopelessness. There's wondering where, where we're going. And I think there's a lot of feeling powerless. Um, but I think with how we relate to one other person, we do have some influence. And even though we may not get the right reaction uh, we have a way of actually just shifting the energy of the world. And so I, I believe that a, one conversation with one person can can add up and it can actually begin to shift as simple as it is. Because in many ways, when you have that moment of interaction, it's your ethics, it's how you view life, it's how you regard somebody else, it's your own self-respect. So right now, I think all those things are being challenged. People are, A lot of the issues that are going around the world are people are not seen. You know, the basic dignity or people are not acknowledged. So... Can, we can actually be brave and actually begin to acknowledge somebody in a very simple way, and that begins to have a chain reaction. So I think a lot of, a lot of the issues of violence, a lot of the issues that are going on now is this sort of fundamental disconnect. And I feel like, you know, um, good-hearted human connectivity is, is essential. And, and we have so much technology, but that's essential for building uh, the future. Yeah, so it seems like the core, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm usually wrong. The the core of what you're saying is the 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 first and most important thing you can do in conversation is actually recognize that you're talking to another human being right now. That there's somebody who matters in the universe outside of you. 
And uh, that move is the first step toward creating a, a this is going to sound a little grandiose, but a better world. I agree. I mean, I think it's basically in that moment, I, you know, I consider it like hello is like a human empowerment. It's, it's just like there's a moment of openness. Nobody says hello to close up. It's like hello. And so you have that moment. There's that space where you acknowledge another human being. And that, mm-hmm. that human to human, you know, it's like a child being born is a profound experience because we're all existing. We're living on this thing. And at a very basic level, we're all here wondering what's going to happen. And at that moment, it's actually acknowledging that situation. And it's primal or simple. And it can easily get sort of buried and complicated. And, you know, so I feel like that's happening really at every conversation. It's like we're just being born. A translation that I'm making up on the spot for hello, a proper hello, might be, I see you. I see you. Exactly. Good to be seen. Good to see you. Thank you very much uh, for coming in. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Congratulations you. on the new book. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Okay, so that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to suggest topics or guests for the show, just hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Special thanks to Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the team here at ABC who uh, helped make this thing possible. And remember, we're now on TuneIn. You can hear our new episodes there five days early on Fridays through the end of this year. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.